This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. Golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I am Ken Tripp. And I am Zach Moore, and we have a very special guest with us today, Brandon Shea Matella, host of Melodic Treks and Star Trek Las Vegas 50 Special Ambassador. What's up, Brandon? Uh, I'm doing fantastic and would prefer it if for the rest of the episode you called me Ambassador Brandon. Ambassador Brandon it is. Yes, I like that. <laughs> that that's actually easier than your 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 three-piece name, I think. So Ambassador Brandon works that's for me. That's like Neelix in that episode, uh, I think it's Fair Trade, when he's when when Janeway's like, oh, we should make you ambassador. And he's all like, ooh, I'm an ambassador. And he starts telling that, that Talaxian friend of his that he's an ambassador. If you say so, Brandon. <sighs> all right, Ambassador Brandon, it is good to have you aboard with Zach and me to discuss the episode Where No Man Has Gone Before. I got to say, though, I'm a little confused before we jump into this. Why did you want to talk about a first season episode of The Next Generation? Like, I, I like The Traveler, you know, and whatnot, but but where no, no, no one's gone before, where they they go to that near warp and they do that weird warp. I just didn't understand why you wanted to do a Next Generation well, episode. Well, th- this today. isn't the politically correct 80s, Brandon. This is the 60s, and here it's where no man has gone before. Yes, yes. What? Uh, perhaps you you might have heard the statement, you know, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's it's okay. We're going retro here. So we're going to go do a deep dive into this show. We're going to pull Brandon out of TNG, back to TOS where he belongs, oh. and discuss what makes this show such a great launching point, at least in my opinion, for the original series. So before we get deep into it, Zach, would you care to give our listeners a brief synopsis of this episode? First off, this is my favorite episode of the original wow. series. So okay, that I, says I'm, a lot. I'm not going to read off a memory awful. We're just going to I'm just going to wing this synopsis here and mm-hmm. let's see what happens. So, the Enterprise, NCC 1701, going towards the galactic barrier. Uh, it encounters a emergency buoy from the SS Valiant, which was a Earth ship that got lost there about 100, 200 years ago. They beam it on board and they have some mysterious logs about how the ship exploded, but that doesn't stop them. They go through the galactic barrier they're they're bombarded by all this energy and it zaps several crew members one being gary mitchell the other being elizabeth denner and uh they wake up mitchell has these glowing eyes and he starts to have these these powers and he becomes you know more and more of a threat to the crew and there's a big debate about what should we do with them should we kill him now should we abandon him on a planet you know he's kirk's best friend from the academy day so there's a lot of emotional involvement there uh, Spock being the cold logical one is like we need to get rid of this guy he's a problem 
Dinner's the emotional uh, doctor. She's a psychiatrist, so she sees like the human side of things. She's like, "Oh no, this this could be a great evolution of mankind, and, and we should you know embrace this and study it." Uh, but that all becomes moot because Mitchell really starts to literally get a god complex. So they knock him out, they beat him down to an abandoned planet. But his powers continue to grow. He escapes. Dinner develops the same powers. It takes her a little longer. Her eyes uh, start to glow as well. Uh, and then we have it just a classic Kirk versus uh, God figure at the end of an episode, uh, big old fisticuffs, and uh, Kirk defeats uh, Mitchell, and uh, that's the end of the pilot, and him and Spock kind of have a bonding moment at the end, and we're off to our five-year mission, and that's the synopsis of Where No Man Has Gone Before. That's a pretty good synopsis. That was pretty fast, too. For uh, for all our listeners out there, if if you haven't seen the episode in a while, we recommend it highly because... You know, part of our journey with this this new uh, show that we're doing is really trying to encapsulate all the different elements of TOS, and it's it's a fascinating show just because of the way it looks, its aesthetics, and so forth. We're going to dive into that. So, in that vein, Brandon, what were your initial thoughts of this episode when you first watched it, and how do you view it today? You know, I can't actually remember the first time that I watched it. You know, I've seen this episode so many times, and... I know that I'm known on the network for my love of the alternative factor, which is true. I really love that episode. This is actually my favorite episode of the original series as well, you know, and it goes back to, it's got a different tone and a different feel, right? So I can't tell you when it was that the first time I watched this episode was, I I know it was, it was back when I was about 12 or 13 years old, but how I view it today is I think that this is the, one of the perfect episodes of the original series, the tone of it and the way that the story, the story works and how they've got this challenge that they've got to, got to come across of like, look, we got no warp power. What are we going to do? This is my best friend. How am I going to address this situation? I don't want to leave him behind. I don't want to kill him, but he's turning into a complete stranger that I don't know. And he's going to kill us at some point as he gets powerful. And it's interesting to watch Spock develop because we had him in the first episode of the cage and how he changes here with the with the uh, integration of the the cold and logical number one into his you know alienness, uh, you're, you know they're still trying to work out and figure out Spock, but you can see the beginnings of his logic and how they're trying to address him being this alien. And he's like, like logically, we got to kill this guy before he kills us, and Kirk doesn't want to have to deal with that. So this is one of the biggest challenges that Kirk has to face, along with City on the Edge of Forever, in my opinion. You know because. Gary Mitchell's his best friend. So I, I like those things about this episode a lot. Well, that's great. So, Zach, you said at the beginning that this was your favorite episode. And, you know, it's 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 strange. And, and my little comment on this is it's the very first one, right, that they, they, they put together. So they really hit it out of the park. But why is it your favorite episode, Zach? Well, I think if, if you look at what everybody's favorite episodes are from different shows, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting through line. They're all episodes that are... Uh, not the norm you know city on edge of forever not a standard episode of star trek uh yesterday's enterprise or the inner light very different episodes of the next generation far beyond the stars or in the pale moonlight very different episodes of d space nine it, it goes on and on and on timeless and voyager you know just stuff that either like alternate versions of crews or or just alternate ways of looking at the show and i feel like for these for these episodic tv shows Whenever you get something new and different, it's refreshing, and you can look at things with a different perspective, and I think that's why it, it sticks out from, from the crowd of episodes. 
uh, of just another you know, just another adventure. So you know, I, I, much like Brandon, I can't remember exactly when I first saw this episode, having grown up on Star Trek. But but I know like like when when the episode really kind of cemented with me, like man, I, this might be my favorite episode, is um, when the Sci Fi Channel was doing their special editions of the original series. I believe it was nineteen ninety eight ish. And uh, they were they had remastered them, uh, not not the 2006 remastering with like you know CGI and stuff, but they you know cleaned right. up cleaned up the image, and they had you know hosted by William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. They had behind the scenes you know cl- clips in the middle. It was a big deal at the time, and I remember this episode, and I was like, man, this this episode is awesome. Like like it has I, I like I enjoyed the look of it because it looked a little different, and we'll get into that later. But uh, I I also enjoyed the themes here because he made. The cage came and went, and they told Roddenberry, "It's a little. We need a little more action. You know, we need, we need a little more something going on here. We like we like this idea you have, but retool it a little bit." And so this is the perfect combination of like philosophical ponderings on you know absolute power corrupting absolutely, and then also like just good old fashioned action at the end because you know Kirk and Mitchell get into a fight and and, and it's good stuff. You know, it's it's well choreographed and, but all this rests on the fact that it's a personal dilemma for Kirk. Like this guy's his best friend. And because it's, you know, the first episode, you can just, um, uh, you can infer all that, what's going on. I, I know on Mission Log, they've talked about this and how, you know, Gary Lockwood as Gary Mitchell feels like he's just a guy that, you know, belongs in space. Right? You totally buy the fact that he's been on this ship and they're all friends and the chemistry that everybody's there from the start. So it, it would be different if this was like, you know, in season two and this this new guy you've never seen before is Kirk's best friend. You know, that that's, that's retconning, you know, like where was this guy before? But since this is the beginning, you can buy it. They, they have a great relationship between two of them. They have some good stories about their past. So that they really sell you on the fact that these guys have an emotional connection. And it's and it's a challenge for Kirk to get rid of his, his best friend because he's a danger to the, his crew. So it's a great challenge for Kirk because he has to choose between the good of his crew and his ship and his best friend. And then, like Brandon was talking about Spock, or at least coming to his own. Uh, they were still figuring out Spock here in these early episodes, but... McCoy's not here, right? So that's the only the only thing missing this episode is McCoy. We all love McCoy, but you know Kirk. It's it, it that makes it a tougher decision for for Kirk because he doesn't have McCoy to bounce off of. He just has Spock telling him you know the other side of things. So just across the board, I, I just it gives you space adventure because they go to the galactic barrier. It gives you the personal dilemma, which is what Star Trek's all about ex- exploring the human condition, and it gives you just a fun action adventure as well. So just great entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I agree with everything you're saying, and and I think what's fun is when when I talk to you and Bichet about this. I'm sorry, Ambassador Brandon. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I forgive you. When I talk to you about this, and I and I hear that excitement, and I just watched the episode, and so I I looked at it through the same lens I always did when when starting to appear it, but I, I when I first started to watch it, but then you start to drive into more of. I guess the the one-offs to me, which I really enjoyed. So I was thinking about, so this was the first episode uh, that was created for the series. It was with William Shatner, first one he was on board. And he fit in like a glove. You know, there was no, it just seemed like there was this this familiarity that had been long established. And uh, that that really made it interesting to me. And then the the fact that one of the things that occurs when when you're working with a a team for a long time whether you're in the service or a big company or whatever is that a lot of the protocol uh starts to get really lax uh it snaps back because your training makes it snap back but when you're with a lot of people for a long time it's it's a lot like captain kirk being called jim by gary mitchell right in the beginning and the two of them have kind of this rapport and this back and forth that you can see uh, kind of some fun with Spock as well. And and I really enjoyed that aspect of the show because that is very realistic. And 
what I kept doing was comparing it in my head to the first episode of The Next Generation. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. The Next Generation. And it, it was 180 degrees the other way, right? It was extraordinarily formal. It was all these things. It was tight. It was, uh, you know, it, when when that team worked together for a while, they eventually got to that chemistry. But it is amazing that that chemistry was there right off the bat for this show, the way they wrote it, uh, the, the way you, you feel about the ship. And it's it was very believable to me. I... Uh, I, I really, I really enjoyed it. Even a lot of the aesthetics. When I look back, it's funny how what's old is new again. And there were aspects of it that looked a little bit more modern uh, in this episode, even though it was an older episode. And they changed things up to make things more modern in the later episodes. So all those dynamics were in play. And then the plot itself was brilliant. It was really, really well thought out. And and like I said before, you know, you're trying to kind of picture up all these timelines. The Valiant was 200 years earlier. So now with uh, 50 years, think about it, 50 years worth of episodes in different shows, you start to go, okay, 200 years ago. Uh, you know, I, I think about people like, like, like Jeff Harlan, who's going, okay, so where would the Valiant be? Would that be a Franklin class? Would that be, what would it be, right? Uh, it's, there's, there's a lot of things now when you, when you go back that you can pull it into the now and it makes it all that much better to me anyway. Part of what you were saying there with the familiarity of the crew, um, like if you go and you look on timelines, I think it's been generally determined that this is actually about a year into the five-year mission, right about where this is. Like it's it's not right at the beginning where an encounter at Farpoint is literally the first mission of the new ship, right? Like I don't know that it was originally intended that way, but over the time, I think Denise uh, Akuda and uh, Mike Akuda had put it along in that point where it's not right at the beginning of the mission. It's a little bit in. So you're right. You do get that familiarity, but it is at a different point in the mission than Encounter at Four Point was. And so you have that familiarity of people who've spent some time together, spent some missions together, spent some time in deep space together. Right. And that adds to the tragedy of Gary Mitchell with them being friends as well in that what happens to him in this episode, he didn't ask for, right? It's just something that happened to him and couldn't be controlled as well. And that's part of the fascination of the episode for me as well, is that I think a lot of great episodes, like a lot, I really like reading Stephen King a lot, right? And a lot of Stephen King characters have things like this happen to them, where, you know, some situation is thrust upon them that they didn't ask for, right? And it puts them in a situation of bad, yeah, to your point, Brandon, I think every other, well, it's true, every other Star Trek series starts at, here's the crew being assembled. Like, usually one or two people know each other from the past, you know, Picard knows Crusher, Cisco knows Dax, Janeway knows Tuvok, stuff like that. But for the most part, everybody's a clean slate, and they have to get to know each other as the actors and characters are getting to know each other simultaneously. Uh, and then another angle of that is, look, this is the second pilot of Star Trek. So all the behind this, most of the behind the scenes people knew what they were doing. You know, of course, Leonard Nimoy is the only actor, but the other actors had seen the cage. So they kind of knew what they were getting into. They went, what is this Star Trek thing? You know, they could at least see a final product. So I think that, that informed a lot of the familiarity and, and uh, that we're talking about here. And then, you know, uh, and real quick about, about when this takes place. That, that's a good question. Like, cause I've seen many fan speculation. And then obviously the Okudas have their uh, Star Trek chronology. Now, I found that it's generally accepted that this is before the five-year mission. Like after this, they they you know go get refit or whatever, and they start their five-year mission. Is that is that what the current Star Trek 
idea. I guess I'll have to get the new Star Trek encyclopedia when it comes out and see <laughs> where this yeah. is. But, you know, because the original version of this episode, there was no narration at the start. Like, there's no space, the Final Frontier, right. you know, which is interesting because... You know that that I know I know it was probably like a production thing, but you can look at it through in universe eyes and say, hmm, like maybe this isn't the five year mission. And then the, after this, they go get you know their new uniforms and they refit the ship because of this. This, this is a big catastrophe that happens to the ship here, uh, and then they get re- refit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I think that makes sense. The other piece of that too, when we talk about familiarity, it's obvious that that Gary and Kirk go back a long, long way. Right. So Gary's a few years younger than him. And they it sounds like they meet in the academy where he was an upperclassman. Kirk was an upperclassman and then taught a course that Gary attended. And, you know, like there was a lot of hijinks between the two of them. They just had that right chemistry right where he wanted to be on the ship. But you do not see that, you know, they're they're talking about Spock and they're trying to define him. And just the way that the two of them were talking with each other right at the very beginning made me feel like they're pretty new. They're mm-hmm. still trying to figure each other out. So chronologically, I was thinking, okay, this is, you know, Kirk, it, maybe the ship and the company on the ship had been around a, a while, but Kirk was basically new. They weren't talking about it in those terms, but you could kind of see that. And I know that was probably more for the audience, that uh, they, they were trying to to work out the the, the communications and, and, you know, define who Spock was, like you were saying ambassador brandon at the very beginning that they uh they really you know he he wasn't well defined there but he was he was starting to transform into the spark that we know so that's what i say what i say that that familiarity it, it reminded me of you know just like the opening to beyond there's there's a lot of things going on uh and and you can tell with time or with the people that you know because if you think about it in the new in the new movies uh, they all came mostly out of the academy together except for a few so it's uh, it, it's just an interesting uh, perspective to look at the show and and look at how well it launched. It's it really was an incredible uh, episode. It really it really was in that in that aspect that they they hit it out so well so early. We can't forget the best part of this episode. Absolutely, hands down, is how tight Spock's pants are in this episode. He has got some epically tight pants. You know, Brendan, I wasn't really paying attention to that, so I'll take your word for it. But he's like, yeah, Brendan, I can't say I noticed that. (laughs) But he's, I've seen this episode a lot. When he's standing there and he's like reading off what he's getting from the Valiant and stuff, like he's got some pretty tight looking pants on him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you you know, that that does remind me, you know, when Kirk's making his like ship wide announcement at the beginning, uh, he's sitting in his chair and then Spock like interrupts and like, it's coming through now. Kirk just kind of glances him a look like, dude, I'm talking here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that, that was amusing. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like that was a Shatnerism he, he inserted there. But, you know, along this line of thought, you know, we've been talking about how this is the second pilot and, and all that. So even though this is the second pilot, this episode was originally broadcast third by NBC. And, you know, and to this day, it's still listed third like, in all the home video releases or, or most of the home video releases and then all the streaming sites and et cetera. And then t- to me, more than anything else, this episode is why I always prefer the production order when it comes to TOS, because you can see the evolution of the show itself and then like meta narrative, you know, and, and the story and the characters and the costumes and all that. So, so what, what are you guys thoughts on what would you have done with where no man has gone before back in 1966? If you were NBC, because, because I, I see both ways. I see like, well, if this is the first episode we show, it's very different than the show we're actually, you know, it's in production. So it's, it kind of misrepresents what we're going to be giving people every week. But at the same time, this clearly takes place before everything else. So I, I, I see their dilemma there. What, what, are you, what are you guys' thoughts on that? 
I think that they should have aired this episode first myself. Like, uh, there, there is no, what is the standard episode of Star Trek? Like when you go through it, every week is different. Like look at, look at the order that they did it in. We, we start with the man trap, then we go to Charlie X and then we go to this, like even right there with those three episodes, none of those are alike. Right. So, and you go through the season, you got things like balance of terror, you got the paradise syndrome, you got the alternative fact, you got the city on the edge of forever. There's no standard for what Star Trek is. It's all over the place. It's kind of like each week is a different style of episode. And that's continued on with the next generation and D space nine. Some weeks you got funny, some weeks you got serious, some weeks you got scary. So I really think that they should have started it with this episode, but I don't know that it makes that much of a difference either way. Well, we talked about it a little bit during the commentary for, for the man trap. Did it make sense? And what were they trying to capture? And how are you going to pull in the audience? I understand it was more of a timing issue and the special effects that came along with this episode that pushed it back versus a a real thought that they wouldn't gonna they, they wouldn't be able to start with this. However, well, well, that's the, Corbin Knight, the Corbin Knight, Corbin Knight maneuver. maneuver that's yeah, this right one too. was complete. Like this was in the can for a year. Oh, it was in the can. Oh, okay. My so mistake. like that. That's it's like. Come on, why didn't you just show this one? Yeah, that's that's kind of what Brandon and I are saying. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense to me. I think the the audience, though, I I wonder if when you talk about episodic television in the 1960s, most everything being black and white, uh, how much you could really tell that there was a difference from you know that aesthetic to the next. I mean, other you had the. You had the, the, the lamps and things that were on the stations, and obviously Spock's makeup was a little bit different. But you know, take it back to a different time where, you know, there's a lot of shows on TV back in those days, a lot of episodic television, and there isn't, you know, you're not, you're not watching it, then you don't have the ability to go rewatch it fairly quickly. In fact, it's over a, a period of time. I think that the impact to the audience was minimal, if, if, even if it was caught. You know what I mean? If uh, if people paid that close attention to a brand new show, maybe they did. But there's you know there's there's a huge difference probably in the way Star Trek launched versus the way Star Trek Discovery is going to be launched, where people are looking at every little bitty detail and trying to figure out if they like it or they don't like it or whatnot. Remember, this show did well, better than people thought in the ratings, but it didn't take off until it was in syndication. So I'm guessing that a lot of those questions. What should have launched first, or you know, did people notice this or that? Probably came up when it was in syndication, but not when it was live broadcast. They've always had syndication or um, publishing issues with uh, with Star Trek. Like uh, in, in the Next Generation, like Haven was an episode that aired out of order, you know, and Skin of Evil and. Uh, Symbiosis, I think it is. Like those yeah, were yeah. filmed out of order and aired in a different order. D Space Unification Nine. Part One and Two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, D Space Nine with uh, uh, A Man Alone and Past Prologue. Mm-hmm. Like those mm-hmm. were actually switched. And in Voyager at the end of season one, they held back four episodes of season one of Voyager to be aired during season two. And then they didn't even start the season with those four episodes. Yeah, that's they... crazy. I just found out about that like this year, Brandon. That, that, like the, the first four, like uh, 37s and all that was supposed to be, 37s was supposed to be the season one finale, right? Yeah, Voyager? 37s. Parturition, uh, Twisted, and... One. Projections, was it? Projections, yeah. Those were all yeah. supposed to be the the last four episodes of season Star one. Trek trivia here on Standard Order. <laughs> yeah, but none of those shows changed their aesthetic. The uniforms, the ship design, all that stuff, none of that changed. So it's it's oblivious to you and me until years I see later when saying, they publish Kendo, it. Yeah. I, you're right. People didn't overanalyze television the way we do now, obviously. And so like maybe like the, at the water cooler conversation the next day, like, hey, didn't... 
didn't that guy with the ears have like a blue shirt last week and he's wearing a gold shirt or you know maybe somebody noticed that but i I do see what you're saying especially on black and white television a lot of the changes would not be as obvious so Mm -hmm. uh i you know and i guess another another point on this is you know charlie x aired right before this as the second episode very similar plots too i mean not, not exactly the same but a human who has abilities beyond their, you know, normal control or whatever, mm-hmm. and they kind of get carried away with their power and stuff. So, you know, absolute power corrupting absolutely. Again, the theme, which is a very common theme in Star Trek, but like to have back-to-back episodes like that, you know, uh, because Charlie X w- was originally, you know, further on down the line in production, it wouldn't have been as obvious if like Star Trek repeating its themes if they hadn't aired these episodes back to back. And I wonder you going back and reading, you know, I'll have to go back and check this out sometime. But if there were any reviews at the time, be like, okay, it's every week on the show going to be like somebody gets powers and they have to stop him you know <laughs> well if they didn't do that they wouldn't have had of gods and men right <laughs> yeah that's true to say. yeah even that see even that fan film of gods and men which is what you're referring to can that that sees the correlation between those two characters how they're more or less the same kind of character so yeah they they duke it out at the end yeah yeah, if you, if you want to see some geriatric battles, we'll t- take a look at that movie. You know, yes. you can make you can make fun of the TOS movies, especially the later ones, as as much as you want. But that one, that's a whole different league. <laughs> so, so to, to this point here, right, we're talking. You know, let's let's carry on this on this line of thought. This episode, it's kind of a middle ground aesthetic between the cage and then TOS proper. So, of these three looks, you know, the cage where no one has gone before, then you know, the original series itself. Which do you guys prefer? We'll start with you, Ken. What do you think? You know, it's it's a great question. I think where no man has gone before has the right aesthetic to it. It uh, it it seemed to me like the bridge was a little smaller. I I could be wrong in that, but it had that feel that it was a little bit more tighter. Uh, it had some very different camera angles that were used. You know, where you see them going down the corridors and into an elevator from the ceiling. You know, looking down at them. It it had. It had a lot of things that I enjoyed about it. I, I, I think what happens, though, to be honest with you, is we grow accustomed to things, and we like it when it changes a little bit. And in this case, we're we're looking backwards as the show moves forward. So it's it's just an odd dynamic. I you know the, the cage was fine, but I I think that it, you know eighty percent of what where no man has gone before was in the cage. I didn't see a lot of difference in those aesthetics. Maybe the um, the rippling effect when you put it on the monitor and all that stuff wasn't quite as dramatic as it was in the cage. But at any rate, I, 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 I like what they wound up with, and I understood the why because of color television and why things were made so much more colorful. But, you know, f- for me, it, um, I, I, I don't get caught up in the aesthetic all that much. I think that, uh, that that both worked. I think the designs were revolutionary, and they weren't radically altered between the episodes. Just it almost seems like more things were taken out to make it look a little bit more sleek than than added in. What are your guys' thoughts? I love the cage. The cage look is a. Uh, I just think it's so cool because it's a little grayer. It's a little darker. You know, they they did film it in color, but uh, uh, you know, just the. The, the mood of it is a little bit better, for my opinion, of, uh, of science fiction of the time. Um, I know that they were trying to have these vibrant colors because they wanted to sell color televisions, but I really like the look of the cage. You know, they're gray away team jackets and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. just the phasers, the way they had to twist them and stuff to put it up to a higher power or whatever and, you know, things like that. I, I don't know. I really like the look of the cage myself. Yeah, I think if I had to pick one, it would, again, this would be my favorite episode. I'd probably pick Where No Man Has Gone Before because it's it's 
it's a great middle ground because I do I do like the cage aesthetic because it's more just you know feels like classic sci-fi if you will uh, the the major change you know to, uh, to your point Ken like eighty percent of what you see in in either one is the same uh, you know the bridge is like red here the doors are red the railing is red we have a lot of that red uh, and that's that's a nice kind of way to have colors pop but not too like in your face um, I and I really like the material of the uniforms here I mean they feel like they look a lot more professional, honestly, because, you know, in the, you know, the first two seasons of TOS, the uniforms they didn't quite fit always as well. You know, they're kind of riding up some, you know, they, they look like wrinkly T-shirts occasionally, you know. But when they change the uh, material in the third season, they really actually fit everybody a lot better. And then that's the, the same uh, uniforms that Star Trek continues wears as well. So that it just looks a lot more professional because, you know, that's the the unofficial fourth season of the original series. So uh, of, of all these uniforms, I definitely prefer these. It's, it, I guess there's no regulation on if their uh, collar should be popped up or not. Because <laughs> in the cage, you know, Pike has a rolled over collar, but here Spock and Kirk have this this turtleneck almost on, of their collar. So so I, I I know you don't care about the minutia about this stuff, Ken, but man, I live for this stuff, man. <laughs> that's, not, that's, not, that's not true at all. I, I did pick out, you know, I was looking at it going, hmm, you know, well, there's a very obvious zipper. Would they be doing that? Or would it be more like a Ziploc bag in the 2030? century yeah, where it just Spock's kind of pulls up when he's playing chess there like you can just tell yeah. that it's like zipped up on the shoulders well you and... can see it you can see it on kirk too so it's funny you say that actually i am into the minutiae more than you realize when it comes to practicality how things work and 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 you know if the uniforms make sense or not all that stuff does because practically speaking we we utilize that stuff all the time you know i you know i i've listened to a lot of shows i've read a lot of things on facebook lately about people, you know, uh, even on Bichet's show, uh, Melodic Tracks, where they were, uh, I think it was Suzanne, was talking about the uniforms for Star Trek, the motion picture. And she just can't watch the movie because she can't look at those uniforms. And I'm thinking she must be thinking of the onesies, which are a little bit more, uh, let's just say, you, you know, very few details are left out. But <laughs> but I do think of the practicality of that away jacket that they had, all their equipment being in it, you know, and I compare that to like a Wrath of Khan where they had this huge jacket with... You know, it almost looked like they had suitcases for pockets and all that stuff. And then it's, you know, and people really love that. And I go, well, that's not practical either. Then I take it back to the original series. And you're right. I think the uh, the, the cage or the menagerie, they had it right with those away jackets. And it hasn't really been matched too well since, not until I think beyond uh, where they where they had something that, that made sense. But well, when the, you're, the motion when you're picture had those jackets. Yeah, they did. That's what I'm saying. It's uh, they had it there, but it, it you know everything kind of gets trashed when you talk about uniforms for the motion, unless you're talking about the admiral's uniform, which I think is still the best uniform of all time. But that's yeah, and well, you know, and they even copied it in the Kelvin timeline. Pike has that same uniform that Kirk has, but uh... actually, he has a mix of the uniform you see in this show, right, with the puffy collar. It's very thick. And the material is more of a woolen than it is whatever that, you know, it's kind of a polyester type thing. But you're right, it's the same color palette, the green and the white and all that other stuff, but definitely had the, the color of of what, we're, of what we just watched. I, I misjudged you, Ken. I see much like Kirk and Spock, Ken and I are still getting to know each other here on this show, so <laughs> I'm glad you have an appreciation for, for such minutia as well. Hey, man, I love this show, and I was into this minutiae many years before you guys, Sonny. <laughs> I, I like those away mission jackets and stuff like you're saying, but that collar on Kirk in Star Trek Two, that's just epic. That white, that, that just white total fan. It's like, they're like, what is that that dinosaur on, uh, on Jurassic Park? The Lophosaurus, Park? yeah. <laughs> just poof. Jeez, that's funny. So, so one, one but, last question about the aesthetic, and we'll, and we'll move on. 
What do you guys prefer as the nacelle caps on the Enterprise? Do you care? No. I do care. I, I do don't care. care. I, I don't like the uh, pointy antennas on them. It looks it looks too old. So you like the vents of this episode? or? I like the vents on the back, but in the front, if you'll notice in this oh, episode, yes. Yes. the Enterprise actually... See? <laughs> Paying uh, attention. He's got, man, look at this guy, man. <laughs> on the very front, on the what do they call They came up with the term in, in the uh, the next generation or in Insurrection. Boussard collectors or whatever the hell they call yeah, it. Yeah, but Buzzard? I always pronounce it Buzzard. Boussard. 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 Okay. It's Boussard. Yeah, take it from the Canadian. He knows how to pronounce things. <laughs> a. Boussard collectors. A. But the I know what the I'm Enterprise about. in this, yeah, that's right. The <laughs> Enterprise in this episode had had antennas coming out of the front of the engines, in front of the nacelles, and uh-huh. and that looked like a little bit too much Buck Rogers to me. And you didn't see that again on any of the episodes. In fact, it had more of those like a colorful turbine look going forward after this episode. Yeah, it doesn't matter to me. I like the Enterprise is just a beautiful woman the way she is wherever she is. She looks great. Although it did lead to some many, many, many continuity problems because obviously they used a lot of stock footage in TOS and they just didn't really care how the Enterprise looked. They just switch in, uh, drop in various shots. So you'll see like the Enterprise, you know, uh, the, the original series Enterprise coming towards camera and then you'll see the pilot Enterprise going away from camera in two shots and just find something they, they corrected in, in the uh, 2006 uh, remastered with all the CGI. So. so you're talking so you're talking about the the bubble that's on the on the back. Well, yeah, I'm talking front. about uh, I was talking about the back, but you're talking about the front. They they are both backwards because when Renoma is going for you right, it has the pointy tip on the front and it has yeah. a vent on the back, and then the original series, like you said, it just has kind of like a a bubble so, white. <laughs> yeah, so and a, and so here was the back. this was my thought process, and maybe I'm wrong. You guys tell me. I thought when they were on impulse power and not on warp drive that 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 bubble came over the stern of the the engine right because they weren't operating and and this is just what i always assumed and then when they go to warp speed just like anything else um kind of like they did uh that was really kind of illustrated very well i thought in the jj trek movies where you see you know the kind of the vents open up and then boom it goes into warp speed that's i don't know why i thought that i don't know if i I don't think i've ever read it but that's what i always assumed that they were on impulse power and they close the they, they close the vents off. That is the best fanboy justification I've ever heard, Ken. I've never heard or read that anywhere. You need to like get on the internet and start preaching that because that will blow people's minds. Well done, sir. Just I until somebody you. shows you're wrong and be like, nope, nope, no. Nope. In this episode, they did this. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that won't take that won't take long. But <laughs> I'll take about it wasn't, thirty seconds. <laughs> it wasn't really a fanboy thing. It was just a practicality. Thing. No, no, you know, that's I've, great. That that is yeah. fanon, man. That's like the best form of fanon right there. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I don't think it's that they didn't care about it. Zach, it's just the budget. Like they couldn't. Oh no, no, I'm not saying they didn't care. It was just an unfortunate reality of the of the times. Like, well, we got to use this. So, well, apparently, like the last original shot of the Enterprise, the last recorded shot was in the Trouble with Tribbles, and after that, everything was stock footage. Every shot of the Enterprise from the rest of season two on was stock footage of the ship. No, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. There's there's not a lot that that was going on back then, so. Yep, we're just sailing through space. The stars are going by. Here comes the planet. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting about that, though, so in, what about season three? Did they do any new shots for season three? No, Not that was the it. the Enterprise itself. Like, they did the Tholian ships and a, a couple of the, and the uh, Romulan battlecruisers, the Klingon battlecruisers. But uh, I think, yeah, I think you're right, Brandon. I think that as for the Enterprise model itself, that was it. They just recomposited it in with the, all these other ships. Mm. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I didn't. I, didn't, I was unaware of that. I learned something. There we go. 
So I guess I'm not in the much in the minutiae as I thought. Oh my goodness, <laughs> what are we gonna do? Okay, so one of the questions I had for you guys too is. Uh, would this show have been a good episode to recreate with today's technology? Could this have been a, I'm not saying in the JJ universe, but could it have been a rebooted episode? Is it a show you'd like to see with, with CGI and, and, and done in modern times? Well, that kind of gets into the, the question of remastered, but I'll, I'll, I'll table that for a second. And for, for just to, to your point, I think this episode would look great if they made it today, you know, with, you know, if, if an episode of Star Trek Discovery was made, you know, as a remake of this episode, for example, the galactic barrier would probably look more like uh, the Nexus, you know, I know your, your favorite plot device in Star Trek, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and the ships and all that, because this episode, the great thing about it is not too reliant on special effects. I think it gets the point across people, people will criticize the, the, uh, the galactic barrier for just being like a line a straight line but it's like no that's your perspective when you get closer to it it just encompasses everything i mean i'm not really sure you know that i think we know that there's not really a galactic barrier now i think we have a tel- the hubble pointed out there it doesn't see any pink ribbon i don't know but in the 60s they thought hey you know this is a cool idea but i think that could translate better and and um but maybe they'd uh <laughs> give uh use cgi on the eyes for gary mitchell uh which which i'm sure gary lockwood would have preferred those awful we all know the stories about his his terrible experiences with the with the awful contact lenses. Uh, so yeah, I think this episode definitely could have benefited from technology, and we could have seen you know to to that point too. We could have seen more damage to the Enterprise. Uh, I think a lot of these, mo- you know, look, I love model based shows. Like like I'll take a model over CGI any day because it's a physical thing. But one one problem with the models though is you can't show much damage on it because they don't want to really mess up the model, <laughs> you know, so we can't really see the full extent of all the stuff the ship goes through. So that's another benefit of, of using CGI and updated technology. I, I think that the episode could translate well. They would have to rewrite it. Like again, what Zach was saying, there's no galactic barrier. So they would have to change and come up with a different reason for them to, to get their ESP powers. And, uh, but, I think the episode is still a valid story, and I don't think there would be any issues translating into something more modern. Um, you know, getting into what you were saying about the uh, remastered that came out about, I guess it's about 10 years ago now. Um, you know, I when I watch Star Trek, I still prefer to watch it with the original effects. I, I've tried watching it with the remastered effects, but, but to me... I love the original. I'm so glad that I have the Blu-rays for this because I can watch them with the original effects if I want to. And I think that they look just fine the way that they were. And to me, the CGI completely takes me out of the episode. I, I 100% agree with you, Brandon. Like, I think it's a fun thing. I think they fixed yeah. a lot of smaller things, you know, like the counter in the naked time, stuff like that. That's cool. Uh, planets look better, sure, matte paintings and stuff. But you're right. Something about the CGI, just you know that doesn't fit in with the 60s show and, and this is like controversial maybe but i would have preferred like like there's only what, what i think there's like 12 shots of the enterprise that they have for the original series of the actual model yeah it's not what if in, what if instead of cgi remastering they got a model and they just copied everything exactly and they just change a few things for when they need to update something uh i think that would have been a much superior way to remaster the show as far as the ships go because i agree like i have the entire original series on laserdisc which we should get into at some point now's not the episode for that but i that's how i prefer to watch it because it's just something cool and nostalgic about bringing out those I'm, i collect laserdisc so it's just another odd quirk about me but uh that's Weirdo. how i watch the original series <laughs> that's how i watch the original series as well because i think just it all fits in with 
the everything else of the time you know and that's why i prefer to watch them with the original effects as well now I, once again i think they did a great job with remaster like for what oh, they yeah, had, yeah, yeah. For the budget and the time they updated they need to do it he i totally understand all that but it uh, it's cool to see it's, it's a nice alternative uh alternative factor alternative way to see it but i i'm really glad that unlike you know another sci-fi franchise they've given us versions of both to watch for mm-hmm. the rest of time that's right Interesting. I, I, I'm kind of in the middle with you guys, I guess. I, I really like the remastered shots. And specifically for this episode, it seemed to me like they put an awful lot of effort to trying to keep it look like it would have been the same if they just had a little bit more money. <laughs> really, I really thought they, uh, other than you know the planetary things, which obviously is, is more modern when they, when they redid this in the, in the mid-2000s, but the ship itself, if you really look at the ship itself, and that's the neat thing about these these discs, is you can go between remastered and original. And they really did a nice job capturing that. In other words, they didn't change the Enterprise model to look like it did afterwards. They kept it the same, even with the... Uh, the antennas or whatever you want to say coming out of the uh out of the warp yeah drive. but I, I feel like this is the fakest looking of all the remastered ships the that's why i liked it though because it kept <laughs> well I, I know it sounds strange but it's like i could i they they remastered it and they they showed you some different ship angles like i said as if they were doing it with more money back then and and it made it more believable to me now i'm also a guy that would love to see somebody and we talked about this before, Zach, where they take the aesthetic of the bridge and everything and they modernize it so that it would be something that a, a newer, younger audience could could watch. And yet keep the same versions that they have for, for people like you and me that appreciate the original aesthetic. You know, I I struggled with the Enterprise episode um, when when they went back to the... Uh, mirror uh, in a mirror darkly when when they go back to the ship and the aesthetic was identical to the 1960s well it it was a great episode i love that episode but i thought this is ridiculous it just doesn't work and oh, man. they totally tried to for me. they tried to make it work but it just didn't work and and i understand like there's guys out there like james Colley that are so married and you know i love that passion and there's certain things that I like, you know, that are old-fashioned, whether it's ship design, boats, things like that. I'm, I, I love the old things. But I also love to see it in the new modern aesthetic, too, so that it can be shared a little bit better with a, a younger audience. Because, you know, it's I can watch Star Trek because I love it. I have a difficult time watching other TV shows from that era and getting into it, just you, you know, you watch, uh, I was watching, you know, uh, the Charles Bronson movie, The Mechanic from 1972. And it's tough to watch nowadays, you know, because it, it's it's still a good movie. It's, it's not a great movie. Actually, it's not a good movie at all. But it's it's <laughs> it's an interesting movie, right? But when you when you look at um, those timelines and those big cars and all that other stuff, it's 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 tougher for me. Whereas a show like Star Trek, I can watch now and I can watch later, but I, I can also put myself as a newer fan who's grown up with Star Wars and in and, and those seven movies, um, the modern sci-fi or the Battlestar Galacticas, the more modern ones, and then trying to have to flip your brain to watch an old aesthetic Star Trek. That would be difficult, I think. And I think it's okay if they were to go in and really try to modernize it and and make it you know inexpensive. And boy, I think there's a lot of money to be made there. I have no idea what it would cost to do it, but I think there'd be some revenue there. I don't know. I just, I love the originals and I think that they are 
perfect the way that they are. And, you know, my daughter can watch old cheesy science fiction stuff with me and she has absolutely no issues with the special effects. I mean, she's six years old. But it it completely captivates her, um, you know. Now I gotta I gotta say one thing here before we bump along here, uh, just because it's my melodic tricks thing here. So the mechanic was scored by Jerry Fielding, who actually did the music for the Trouble with Tribbles, then the Spectre of the Gun. Hmm. So tying it all together, Brandon. Well done. <laughs> yeah, it it had a lot of uh, funny flutes and sounds, and now I. I always listen to soundtracks, but thanks to to Ambassador Brandon, I'm doing well on this episode. I am really, really, I, I pay even more attention. But I, I hear what you guys are saying. I just think, Brandon, I, you know, for a six-year-old, yeah, I get it. They watch a lot of cartoons and things like that. And But if you're trying to get, let's say, you know, a 10-year-old to a 25-year-old that's never watched the original series, I think it's a lot harder for them to shut it down. How often, you know... As your as your as your daughter gets older, or your kids get older, and you start watching other movies from from the seventies and the sixties, it's it's just not as easy, you know. It's it, unless it's like a holiday theme thing, you know. Everybody gets the Wizard of Oz or It's a Wonderful Life and things like that. But you know, if you wanted to watch like Canon or Barnaby Jones or some of those other detective shows, they just don't play the same. They, you know, it looks very dated. That's all. I don't know. Like, see, I don't. I've just never had trouble with it. Like, all like I love the Twilight Zone, and they've got some cheesy effects in there too. But I like for for me, it's just I understand that it's a it's an effect of budget. And I mean, we we uh, we have such a suspension of disbelief with warp travel and beaming and everything as it is. You know, like one of my favorite episodes of the original Twilight Zone is is uh, will the real Martian please stand up? You know, and when that guy at the end takes off his hat, spoilers, and uh, reveals a third eye, and it's so fake looking. Like I I, I know. <laughs> that it's just it's it's because of the budget and what they could do and like even now i don't have trouble watching old movies with with old effects well to uh, to that episode uh, dr boyce from the cage uh, yes, is the is. martian with the third arm yeah. uh and, and also the twilight zone i love the twilight zone as well i think it in the original star trek very well may be the best two television shows of all time black and white helps the twilight zone right mm. because you look at it through a different lens just entirely because it's like oh well, this is black and white but when something is in, you know, in living color, as NBC used to say, you expect it to look authentic, real. You know, black and white can hide a lot of you know, matte paintings and, and questionable special effects. So, but yeah, I mean, this is we should totally have a, our own another podcast about remaster versus normal because I think there's a lot of this. This could be its own conversation. Well, it could be, <laughs> but I guess the one thing I want to I want to add to this, right, is I'm not talking about how, how how we look at it and how we appreciate it. It's different. I'm thinking about long term, right? I'm always thinking about how can you improve something? How can you make it marketable? How could you take something that's 50 years old? And believe me, the staying power of the original series is incredible. It's incredible. But even when you go to Star Trek conventions or whatever, and we're kind of focused on the 50th anniversary, so it was more of the original series, well, after this year, it's going to get bumped back down again. Uh, that's just the way things go. You have Discovery, and you have more of the fans that grew up in your your eras that are more of the next generation. That's that's what brought people into Star Trek, and I get that. And you can watch the next generation today, and it really holds up well. The original series, it struggles in that, and I think, and I don't, you, me, the three of us, we can appreciate it if it never changes. But boy, there's a part of me that would love, I mean, absolutely love to pull in as big an audience as we possibly can for that original series. And if they were to tweak things and make things more modern and, and use computers to, to, to update that show so more people could appreciate the stories, 
I think it's a win-win. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying anybody's wrong for liking it the old way. I just think that there's nothing wrong with modernizing it because if we get three different flavors to look at, all the better. I think I understand what you're saying. And I will say that what they did with the effects is outstanding. While I do not prefer to watch them, they do look beautiful and they are really cool. And it is great to see neat shots and different angles and everything like that. It is really fun to watch that. And I do appreciate that they did keep the original intention rather than, you know, I'll say it, George Lucas just throwing like just you know, wiping his butt and throwing it all over the screen, you know, and adding like these monsters everywhere. And like, you know, like what's that guy's name? Kevin on, uh, on, uh, Star Trek beyond, like there's not like seven <laughs> Kevins running around the, the bridge because George Lucas has a fascination with little people, you know? <laughs> so like, I, I appreciate what they did with, with, uh, Mike and Denise Akuda and how they're like, we want to keep the original intention and like you said, yeah, they just did this as if they had more money back in the 60s. Well, I know one thing, you know, to, to bring it all back to this episode, one thing in particular, which everyone wanted them to fix, and there was discussion about this, was the tombstone. This is James R. Kirk, because they had not established what Kirk's middle name was. Uh, and there's been so many, like, you know, fanboy justifications. They even wrote, like, a series of novels about Kirk and Mitchell, and R stands for racquetball or whatever. But uh, they they discussed, like, okay, maybe we can, you know, paint out the R and put in a T, but it just would have taken too long and too much money because the CBS Digital had a very limited timetable and budget to do all these remastered episodes. So that's just one of the things that was on the wish list, and it was discussed. It's not like they overlooked it. You know, they discussed it, and the Okudas are the biggest Star Trek fans you'll ever meet, so they, they know about that. But they're like, look, we just can't. We just can't justify it. We just can't do it. I'm sorry. So uh, that, that is a huge discontinuity uh, <laughs> as far as the original series goes. But, hey, you know what? That, those are the little things that we as Trekkies love to point out and find, you know? <laughs> could you guys see the dates on the on the tombstone? Because I, that was one thing I could not make out. It was like some weird star date, you know? Like, yeah, it like went on and on and on. And that, that's the other thing, fans. Like, can't we just have, like, 20... 233 to 2365 and yeah that would have been great so so when they finally do the mega update that you're talking about ken with just complete frame by frame <laughs> upgrades they, they can change that then but yeah that was that was very odd because look in the original series they never said what year it was you some some episodes they say it's 200 years in the future from 1966 some years they say it's you know i believe someone did the math and in squire gothos they imply it's 800 years in the future because of the telescope and all that stuff so no yeah, continuity that was the first there. time i heard yeah jeff said that he uh you know looking back in the past in the in the lens they would see it through but i don't know I, you know i never really caught that i guess i'm so used to it being in the 23rd century well I didn't it didn't until didn't right. uh well yeah in in, in star trek 2 uh, the Wrath of Khan starts with in the 23rd century. And then mm -hmm. in, uh, we didn't get an actual date until uh, the neutral zone in the next generation when data tells the uh, cryogenically frozen people that the year is 2364. So then everybody did the math. I'm like, oh, now we can figure it all out. That's like, that was like the Rosetta Stone they needed to figure it out. So <laughs> uh, anyway, they, they didn't have dates and stuff like that. They just had weird start. start if, you look, if you put the original series in start date order, yeah. It doesn't it's just all over the map. Talk about production versus broadcast order. Let, let's figure out what start date order is sometime and watch it in that order and see what happens then. But uh, anyway, wow. So I think we've come up with twenty seven new podcasts just from this episode. <laughs> forty seven new podcasts. Forty. Oh yeah. Sorry, Mister Nemechek. Forty seven. Anyway, hey guys. So <laughs> as we leave this episode now, I we the three of us got the privilege of going to to Las Vegas this year. 
And I actually did get Sally Kellerman's autograph. I'm, I'm a big Sally Kellerman fan from her days when she, you know, she did MASH and she was in a lot of, she was very popular in the 70s and 80s. And the, the last big movie I remember her making was Back to School with Terry Farrell and Rodney Dangerfield. So she, there's a little bit of a Star Trek connection there too. But let's talk about that panel. Did, did you both see the panel with oh, uh, Sally, Sally and Sally Gary? Sally was there? Yeah. Sally was there? I yeah. thought I thought Sally had a family emergency and couldn't be there, Ken. They said okay. that, but she showed up like five minutes later. <laughs> yeah. All right. So why don't you guys why don't, why don't you one of you guys walk through the uh, the panel that we we witnessed because well, it was it was quite interesting. Other than the fact that Adam Malin doesn't have any clue what's going on at his own convention, um, because like she was there, right? And he's like trying to make up some reason for why she's not well, there. Well, it was it was very was. awkward because you know they we were waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And I was very excited about this panel. I'm sure you were too, Brandon, as we all were. But you know, with Where No Man Has Gone Before being our favorite episode, I'm like, oh, wow, Sally Kellerman and Gary Lockwood. Like, these are big-time stars. And Gary Lockwood being in 2001 A Space Odyssey, you mentioned, Ken, uh, Sally Kellerman being in MASH. So these are, like, mainstream people. Um, we're waiting, we're waiting. And then the host comes out, like, five or ten minutes after the panel is supposed to start. And he says, oh, unfortunately, uh, Sally Kellerman had a family emergency and, and will not be able to be here. So and we're like, oh, Okay. But then Gary Lockwood comes out, and then they start their conversation literally two minutes later. Like, Sally oh, oh Sa- Sally's here? It's like the whole, like, Secret Service thing. Like, I'll put in here. Oh, Sally is here? Sally- oh, oh, we have Sally Kellerman. And she comes out. It was just, it was like, come on, guys. It was, it was the shortest family emergency ever. Yeah, it was like, clearly, they didn't know where she was, and they just kind of made something up to kind of make us not feel bad about her not being there. I don't know, but that could have been handled much better. So that already got off to a rough start. So why don't you take it away from here, Brandon? <laughs> well, I mean, both of them were only in one episode and it was, you know, at 51 years ago because it was recorded like a year beforehand, right? Like that's a long time ago. So they didn't have a lot of memories about it. They talked about mostly about their careers and whatnot in general. And they talked about a lot of stuff. Um, I went up and I asked uh, uh, Gary Lockwood a question about 2001 and working with Kubrick because, you know, like, when am I ever going to talk to somebody that worked with Kubrick? You know, he's one of my favorite directors. Uh, but, and the question that I asked him was, you know, there's stories out there about how meticulous Kubrick was and the fact that he took like so many takes. Did you ever experience that? And he got pretty offended at the question. And, uh, you know, because uh, Shelley Duvall like had a miserable experience working on The Shining with uh, uh, with Kubrick. And it's it's well known that, they, that she didn't like it at all. I don't, I, from what I know, Kubrick didn't care either way. He's just the director doing his job and so that's I'm sure where a lot of the stories come from and that's why I wanted to ask that question is that true because I've this is all I've ever heard Um, I I phoned this question and posted it on the Babel conference so if you go back and search I don't know just (laughs) beginning of August you can see Brandon asked this question on the panel yeah and uh so I mean it was a lot of fun to talk to them and to see them and whatnot uh but I mean like they didn't go too too much in depth about about the uh experience of working on this episode Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I like you guys. I, I thought the the beginning was a little. All right, guys, just tell the truth. But <laughs> we can't find her. Like, or we, well, you know, she's do? slow and it's taking her time to get down here, which is probably more likely. Like, they're right. they're eighty some years old, right? Like, I mean, uh, Sally Kevin looked great for being eighty. Uh, Gary Lockwood is, you know, um, he's old. They're old. Like, he he could have buttoned that bottom button in his shirt, you know. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw that. Yes. But he was kind of hanging out at the bottom because you had a low, ang- low angle camera pointing up at him. It's like, come on. but hey, he's a fun guy. He still's got a lot of energy. You know, he reminds me a lot of, of Shatner because he could, he still has a lot of fun stories to tell and enjoys 
he clearly enjoys the attention of being a star and you know more power to him you know i mean he's he's a was a working guy for for you know 50 years and uh he's he's reaping the benefits of of his career now so so good for him he's just out there having a good time you know you can't fault him for that he's about 50 percent politically correct and yeah, and you know what? That's that's what I that's what I prefer is is people that just be themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Because you know, I, 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 I hate fakeness. Like I said oh, that yeah. out in a second, and it's like, oh, really, boy, you put on this face. But these guys are just being authentic, you know. And they and they, you know, even though they didn't have much to say about more than has gone before, they they mentioned the the course, the the, uh, the lenses and all that stuff. To me, it seemed like they did enjoy just up there talking. You know, yeah, they had a good yeah. time. And, they and, 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 and it also made me wish that the, the the hosts that were up there, all of them at different times, it's like, just just relax, you know, ask real questions that would be more interesting versus, you know, the fawning and the this and the that, you know, it's just, just, just what was it like questions. to meet Gene Roddenberry? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, you're good on, Scott you know. Mance there. Oh, you're you're like my daddy and all this other stuff. Oh, and Scott Mance, he's another one. But anyway, I love, so, I love Scott Mance. Scott Mance is awesome. All right. So let's let's. Let's let's uh, let's just bring this thing to a close here. So, final thoughts, gentlemen, on where no man has gone before. I absolutely love this episode, and I cannot get enough of it. There are episodes that I I get tired of watching. You know, I've seen them so many times, but this is definitely not one of them. I cannot get enough of this episode. Anytime I put it on, I want to watch it the whole way through. I love the effects. I love the music. Like, this is one of the best scores of the original series, and it was used quite often. You know, you got Kirk's battle music. Boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 boom. boom, boom. You know, like, the fight music in it is great. And I love the story. I don't have a problem with Shouty Spock. You know, because they're developing the characters and they're Check trying the to—they're <laughs> trying to get on their feet and they're trying to figure out what kind of show it is they're going to do and they're trying to figure out their characters. Something coming in now. Sorry, I just had to interrupt you. <laughs> exactly. But <laughs> that's like my favorite moment of the episode. I love. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Bichet, you were on a roll, but I couldn't resist. <laughs> Um, but absolutely positively, hands down, my favorite episode of the original series. And uh, I'm going to give this uh, two out of two glowing silver eyes. Mm, There you go. You know there were four of them. (laughs) So for me, you know... uh this is this is my favorite episode of the original series. Like if you if you had to show someone an episode of Star Trek to kind of get him hooked, I would show this episode because I think it encompasses everything. You see because you like you talk about City on the Edge of Forever. Well, that's not really on the ship and it's only two, three of the characters max really doing anything. You show him a mock time, it's a very personal story with Spock. Like you don't you're not as invested if you if you don't know who Spock is. Uh, you know all these other great episodes of the original series, The Naked Time just doesn't really once again, too deep into character stuff. So, uh, Balance of Terror would be another one, I guess, because it's you know spaceship action. But here, the thing about where No Man Has Gone Before, and which 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 was what made it such a great pilot, is you see the space action, you see the personal uh, drama, the the exploration of the human condition, absolute power corrupting absolutely, and then you get to see like you get to go down to a planet, you know, and you get to see you know a, a fight on a planet, you know, and and that that's like all of Star Trek condensed into one, you know. And even at the end. It's you know everybody everybody talks about you know Shatner's being Khan and Wrath of Khan. He actually when he's down on the planet here, he's walking around with the awesome phaser rifle, which we never see again in the original series, by the way. So cool cool prop there. But he's like Mitchell, <laughs> so you get to see a little bit uh, a little bit of Shatner coming through there, future Shatner. But um, and Shatner's on point. This is his first from walking onto set. He is Captain Kirk. You know he just oozes confidence and and just authority and. And you love him from the jump. And, and this just shows you that, you know, 
Jeffrey Hunter was a great actor of his time, but had he been the lead, and Leonard Nimoy has said this himself, the show would not have worked, at least to the success it did, without William Shatner as the lead. And because he had such a, a strong energy, you know, uh, that allowed Leonard Nimoy Spock to be, you know, uh, play no emotions, you know, and that allowed him to, to find where his character could go. So, I mean, the, the you know, say what you will about William Shatner, he is the, the, the linchpin of what made Star Trek so successful, and it's never more evident than this episode. And I love it, and I give it one out of one galactic barriers. Wow, I like that. I, I would even I would even raise your galactic barrier and say if you can make a better galactic barrier in nineteen sixty five than they did in nineteen eighty eight with Star Trek V, <laughs> I think that says a lot right there, doesn't it? So obviously, some shade. I, yeah, baby, they 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 got it done. They got it done back then, and I thought it was very clever. So I, what I really appreciate doing this show with you guys is it makes me it makes me smile inwardly is sharing this passion right and in this this episode I, I i guess i never had it on you know we did a top 15 list and and whatnot and and it didn't crack it and and maybe in in our in in our deep dive when you have 79 to look through and we were trying to find some of the things that might have been a little bit more obscure that people wouldn't necessarily pick back then or that you see in common lists uh you know, you'd pick today. And, and I think I think this, it was a miss on our part because re-watching this and this, this show idea, uh, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And and I think part of it is too is is just coming back from the convention and seeing Gary Lockwood and 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 just like, oh my goodness, I'm 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 back in this world and and Sally Kellerman meeting her face to face. I mean what a sweet, handsome woman she was. Uh, very, very nice and you know, I was I was super thrilled to get her autograph, and I don't know. There, there's just she just has this 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 charisma about her that that is very appreciable, and a, and like Shatner, a very distinct voice and a very distinct way of speaking. You know, always had, and and that's why you could always pull her out of a movie immediately. She just wasn't the the pretty blonde woman. She was the pretty blonde woman that had a unique speaking style and 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 a voice that was very distinct and. All around, this was just a great episode. So I, uh, I, I thank you, uh, Zach, for coming up with the uh, the idea to, to to start with this because uh, I, I love going back and watching things through a, a newer and newer lens and widening widening my aperture, so to speak. Because as time goes on, and and I look back at these and I go, yeah, I remember that episode, whatnot. Well, when I rewatch it, I just see it differently now uh, for for many many reasons. So it was a real thrill. I, I agree with you, Zach. This would be a very, very good show to get a new Star Trek fan engaged in, in into uh, and into the series. And aesthetics be damned, uh, I, I think that the, the quality of these shows, if, if people don't have the ability to enjoy the stories, that's a shame. If, if a little enhancement helps them enjoy the story, then do it. So that's my take on it. I have a question based on something you said. So you said uh, Sally Kellerman is a handsome woman. Is she more or less handsome than Nancy Crater? <laughs> Much more. <laughs> you know, why, why didn't, you know, I know we're closing up here, but wouldn't it have made more sense for Dr. Jenner just to be the doctor? You know? I mean, like, because Paul Fix is, is uh, Dr. Piper. Complete non-factor in this episode. 
right? Well, she uh, was a counselor and a psychiatrist, so it made sense. Well, and then maybe in the 60s, it was a little, oh, we can't have a, a, a female doctor be in charge. But I just, you know, Sally Kellerman's a great actress. It would have been, and, and you know, I, well, I guess the idea was uh, Paul Fix as Dr. Uh, Piper was supposed to be, you know, there for the rest of the show. So uh, it wouldn't make sense to just replace the medical doctor. But I feel like that is one missed opportunity in this episode, just to have her be the doctor on the show, you know, for this one episode, right? And then McCoy can come in and it just all slides in quite nicely. But hey, that's just, that's just me. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's it's it could have been. It, it's interesting. I guess I didn't really pull rank into the thought process. I didn't know if one was junior or senior to the other, you know, because he said life sciences and she said psychiatry, right, when they were introducing what they were responsible for. And hey, that reminds me of one thing I mentioned before and we didn't talk about my fault, guys, um, the penny metaphor, right? We talk about Treconomics and when they were talking about the the, the 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 rate in which Gary Mitchell was gaining power and the, and Sulu uses the analogy you have a penny and it doubles every every day for a month and you're a millionaire so there is money in Star Trek we can cease having the argument <laughs> it's 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 not a communist world it's definitely somewhere in between so there we go <laughs> well it's been fantastic discussing where no man has gone before here on Standard Orbit but this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. I've seen some people panicking. Oh my God, the Andorians are now going to be purple and uh, the Tellarites won't be pigs. They'll be uh, aardvarks. You know, <laughs> no, that whatever. would be oh, great no, if they were aardvarks. That would be <laughs> yeah. Standard Orbit. My greatest joy is hearing from those fans who have read the book and said, I feel like I know him now. Thank you so much for that. I always thought he was a good man, but now I know he was a good man and he was somebody to, you know, look for a role model and try to be that kind of a role model to other people. Saturday Morning Trek. I try to see it how a kid would see it when they were watching this for the first time in 1973. It's not that if the devil's not real, so God isn't real. It's no, the devil's real, and he's actually kind of cool, and maybe we should help him out a little bit. <laughs> that's the way I kind of think it. I think that's even more transgressive than any any sort of statement on whether or not the devil truly exists. Melodic tricks. Darlies are new, darling, our darling, our darling, Charlie is my darling, and I love that. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. All right, so you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at TrekFM and grab the RSS link as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes and helps us increase our visibility for new listeners. Also, we strongly encourage you to become a patron and by joining Patreon. So what is Patreon? Patreon is the service that Trek FM employs to help us bring funds in to keep uninterrupted commercial-free shows to you. So it's, it's real important for us to uh, get the bandwidth that we need. We've been expanding a lot, and we have some great benefits that go along with that. So 
as becoming a by joining patreon you become a member of what we call the patron zone so for 15 dollars a month allows you to join trek fm's patrons roundtable this is how all of us on this show have been introduced to the wonderful world of podcasting so $15 gets you on the roundtable. For $25 or more, you become a, you can become an associate producer on any show you'd like. And we would love to have more associate producers uh, join Standard Orbit. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to see your name on the credits. It's wonderful to be called out. But it, we really, really, very humbly appreciate the support. We really do. There's, you know, all of us do this as... Um, as, as, as something that we really, really enjoy. We want to keep these services to you. And the other thing that is very important to understand is that all of the hosts that, that talk to you, we're all patrons too. So we all pay money uh, into into this enterprise. See what I did there? Uh, to ensure that, 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 that Trek FM stays healthy and that we can continue to bring these wonderful podcasts at the quality. And I'll tell you, the quality here is better than you find most anyplace else. The quality here is is outstanding. So I'd like to thank our associate producers for Standard Orbit, Renee Roberts, Richard Rutledge, and Aaron Harvey. Thank you so much for your support for both Standard Orbit and Trek FM through Patreon. You can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701, Richard at RUT8972, and Aaron Harvey, the Aaron Harvey, at GeekFilter, all of them on Twitter. And if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm or through Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm and the Babel Conference on Facebook. Type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. It's a great way for the listeners and the hosts to all interact and just have a fun, you know, safe place to talk about Star Trek. It's it's a great just community of, of fans and we talk about all kinds of stuff. Uh, the actual podcast we put out, Star Trek itself, any news, it's a great, great place to be. So as for us personally, Brandon, you're a guest. So why don't you go first and tell us, Ambassador Brandon, where can people find you on the internet? Well, when I'm not uh, trying to take over the Enterprise with my godlike powers, you can find me here on the network with new episodes of Melodic Treks, which is all about the music of Star Trek. And uh, I've had both of you guys actually on my show discussing various topics. Uh, Ken joined me for a wonderful episode on Star Trek IV and the music of Leonard Rosenman. And Zach, you joined me for an episode on The Ultimate Voyage, and as well as an episode of the wonderful music for the wonderful movie Star Trek Generations by Dennis McCarthy. And and, favorite movie. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can also find me here in the network with many episodes of From There to Here, which is our daily rewatch project, uh, where I'm known as the optimistic trekker because there's not too many episodes of Star Trek that I uh, I could say bad things about. However, And the Children Shall Lead is one of them. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Brandon Matella, and every once in a while I poke my head up in the Babel Conference. As for me, of course, you can find me every week here on Standard Orbit. You can find me in the Babel Conference. I'm pretty active in there. And personally, on Twitter, you can find me at MoronZach. That's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. And I'm also the host of my own podcast called Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman TV show. We're on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. Excellent. So for me, you can find me on the Babel Conference. I do tend to hang out there quite often. I love communicating back and forth with the fans. And 
I would hope to see you there. I hope you have a lot of things to say about this episode. We really enjoyed this one, and we'd love to hear your opinions. Also, feel free to to reach out and, and friend me or IM me with any questions that you may have. And you can also find me on Twitter at Boston SCPO. That's Boston Senior Chief Petty Officer. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. Standard Orbit.